study, and uh, this evening we're going to cover 2 Kings chapter 10, 18 through 36, and that will be the remainder of this chapter, and it's entitled, Jehu's Destruction of Baal Worship, and I'm going to begin with an illustration. I saw a movie, a Christian movie, many, many years ago. I don't remember the movie. I did a little searching on the internet, couldn't find it. But, but there was an episode which the Christians were gathered, and they were under heavy persecution. And all of a sudden, they were there at church, gathered at church, and in through the door came the military, and they had their machine guns. And they asked all of the Christians to stand. And they did, but not everyone stood. And they said, now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not claiming to be a Christian, you may go ahead and leave. And there was a number of them that got up and left. And as soon as they left, the military leader took off his hat and said, I'm a believer too. I just wanted to make sure that we only had believers when we were talking. And you kind of wonder about those other ones. Were were they Christians but afraid to take a stand? I don't know. Well, we have something like that tonight in our context of tonight, only it's reverse. And this is where Jehu is going to say he's going to be a worshiper of Baal, collects everybody together, then puts 80 men around the house of Baal, and they're all slaughtered. Well, We've got a couple of things going on here besides that. We've got Jehu, who's an interesting fellow, isn't he? He is doing some things right, but we can question not only his motives, but also the way that he goes about them. Specifically, in this chapter, the idea that he is going to lie. And he's going to lie and say, hey, I'm a Baal worshiper, I'm a Baal worshiper, If you thought Ahab was a Baal worshiper, you wait till you see me. And it was all to bring them in. Now, there there was nothing wrong with him slaughtering the prophets of Baal. That's what Elijah did. But one wonders about the lying. And, of course, nothing is ever said about the lying. However, as much good as Jehu did, he doesn't get all accolades and approval. There are some things that he does get called on the divine carpet for, and we'll mention that, and we'll also see what's said in this chapter. Well, with that, before I begin to pray, uh, make sure you're in 2 Kings chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 18. You do remember what happened last time? So Jehu went out and began this killing spree under the divine direction of God of all from the house of Ahab. And he killed 70 sons, and that's recorded in the first part of this chapter till verse 11. However, he killed more than the sons of Ahab. And Hosea chapter 1 verse 4 talks about that sin. God had never asked him to kill innocent people. We find out more in the chapter, the verses 12 through 14. Jehu kept going after the descendants and found the descendants in Beth Aked. And then finally he went to Samaria, the big hometown of where everybody probably fled. 
and he killed all of the descendants there. And he, in fact, will have the divine approval of destroying the house of Ahab, even though he did wrong in killing innocent people. And, of course, that he will have to uh, take the Lord's rebuke and consequences. We'll see the consequences. Well, this was all in... Um, this was all in agreement with Elijah's prophecy that said that the house of Ahab was going to be destroyed. Well, now what's going to happen? Well, he's going to turn his attention away from the house of Ahab because, well, there is nobody else from the house of Ahab. Now he's going to turn his attention to eradicating Baal worship, which is a good thing. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll pick it up in verse 18. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that gives us direction. Even in areas that are gray areas in the sense that there's nothing written specifically in Scripture, but we do have principles that can be applied across the board. Father, help us to always apply them. Help us to have your biblical wisdom. Help us to learn these lessons from Second Kings. Father, it's always right to do right. It's always right to have wholehearted uh, worship towards you. That's what Jehu did not have, but help us to have that. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking then at our text, 2 Kings chapter 10, we want to pick it up in verse 18. And I could read this section, which is 18 through 28, but I'm enjoying just reading a verse at a time and then making comments and going through. But this section here, verses 18 through 28, I've entitled Jehu's Ruse, Jehu's Ruse Against Baal Worship. He does it by trickery. And then we have verses 29 through 31, Jehu's approval of the, by the Lord and his sin. So, the Lord is faithful in saying, this is what you did right, this is what you did wrong. And it's at this point when we talk about Jehu's sin, we're going to sit here and scratch our head and say, Jehu, how could you? And then finally, the third part, verses 32 through 36, we're going to see Jehu's military consequences. In other words, the Lord allowed Jehu to be defeated by Hazael because Jehu did not fully follow the Lord. All right, now let's talk about Jehu's ruse against Baal worship. Let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Well, we know that he doesn't mean this because we already know the context. He's luring them in so that he could kill them all. But it's interesting what he says here. After he's gathered them together, and of course he's speaking to them at this time, he, he's posing himself as a wonderful Baal worshiper, even more than Ahab. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? 
I mean, who can beat Ahab at his idolatry? Because it's said that up until that time, he was the worst king. Well, it's Jehu said, and you know, you wonder if the people should have maybe had a little bit of common sense here. Jehu, of course, then again, if you look at the, if you look at the track record of many of the kings, most of the kings, that's exactly what the people would expect, that Jehu would be a Baal worshiper. But he said, I'm going to make Ahab look like he only worshiped Baal a little bit. So this is how it's set. Now watch how this is going to be set. He's going to gather all the Baal worshipers. Verse 19, now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Now, you've got to come. But Jehu did it in cunning so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. So there you have it. Verse 2, we already know it's a conspiracy. We already know that it's done out of cunning. But let's just kind of go through these. First of all, he's going to bring everybody, everybody who worships Baal in Israel. Everybody who worships Baal in Israel, not the pagans in pagan nations, but those within Israel. After all, Jehu is the undisputed king of the northern kingdom now of what is termed as Israel, not Judah. So he's going to summon the prophets of Baal and all of his worshipers and all of his priests. So he's, it's from the officials, the religious leaders, down to the everyday person who worships Baal. Now, this number was probably substantially lowered thanks to Elijah when he killed all the prophets of Baal. In fact, I was just talking about that yesterday, um, and uh, there was someone who just visited Israel, and we talked about it before they went, and then after he went, uh, you know, he was so excited, of course, and he, he actually went there to Mount Carmel where they have the statue of Elijah holding the sword with his foot on the neck of, of a priest of Baal. So anyway, just impressive. And I think that's why Elijah is held with such esteem. Even though Elisha does a lot of miracles, it's Elijah who really began the efforts to eradicate Baal worship. And that's the biggie in, in kings, Baal worship, worshiping other gods. Well, now Jehu has a plan to get them all, by hook or by crook. He says, I have a great sacrifice for him. We'll take a look at that. There actually is some verbiage about him possibly making a sacrifice. But he says, whoever is missing shall not live. That's kind of interesting because... If you don't come, you will die. But if you do come, you will die. Now, at this point, I want to stop here and I want to look at this little phrase that says, but Jehu did it in cunning. This is a very interesting word with a lot of history. This is the Hebrew word akbah. Now, you know what akbah means? And as I start to give you your definition, you may start to figure out where I'm going with this. 
Akba literally means a heel grabber. You know who was called a heel grabber in the Old Testament? It means a supplanter. Now, what's a supplanter? A supplanter is one who trips up another. And it also means that he is a deceiver. That's what this is. He's doing it by cunning, which is a polite way of seeing he's doing it by deception. Now, if it still hasn't rung a bell with you yet, there's a name in the Bible very similar to Akbah, and that's Jacob. And Jacob in Hebrew is Yaakob or Yaakob. And so it, the, it's the root word. And, and you, we know the situation in the story when they were coming out of the womb, Jacob literally grabbed the heel of Esau, hence the name heel gripper, hence the name deceiver. But that wasn't deceptive. But later on, Jacob lived up to his name and was deceitful in gaining Esau's birthright. Now, quickly here, let's just look at those. First of all, Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. 26, verse 26. After his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, heel gripper, supplanter, or deceiver. And Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. And then in Genesis chapter 27, the deception goes, and of course, Rebekah had something to do with it. He goes in and pretending he's Esau, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. This is Jacob speaking to his father. I have done as you told me. Get up. Please sit and eat my game. And it's not wild game. It's a goat. Um, I don't really think the goat was all that wild. Didn't take him long to go get it. That you may bless me. And then in verse 36, later on, as Esau comes back, he said this. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me. He could say Again, and he does in these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Well, that's the word that's being used here. So we could go and look at Jacob lying and deception. And, of course, we know uh, specifically from the New Testament as well as the attribute of God that lying is a sin. The the conundrum comes in is when we see individuals sin and nothing seems to be done about it. And so we'll talk about that at the end of today's lesson. Well, anyway, he is doing it through cunning. So he, that, so he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. Well, that's a good thing that he's doing that. He has the, he has the divine impetus to go do that. He's supposed to do that. But is he supposed to lie? Well, I, I don't think we're ever supposed to really lie. Well, you have situations in life where you come up to what, if I lie, a short lie, I can get away and there will be less hassle and trouble. Yeah, right. Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 20 now. So not only does he lie about that, but he says, okay, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And what this means is 
the word sanctify means also to set apart. God is holy and he is set apart from us. When he makes someone holy or something holy, he sets them apart for his use. Here's a perfect word to say, set up, set apart this particular day and we're going to have a solemn day, a solemn holiday, and it's going to be for Baal. Verse 21. Well, then Jehu begins to carry this out. He summons all the Baal worship. He says what he's going to do, and now he is going to do it. Then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Now, one translation said that it was they were filled from mouth to mouth, meaning that they were very close and they filled up this temple. The house of Baal is a temple. And who do we think built that? None other than Ahab, if you remember that. In fact, would you turn with me to 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, verses 32 through 33. And that's where it says, So he erected, that's Ahab, an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Now, regardless of how many are there, and this is all from the land, it's a pretty big place, even if they are in there like sardines. Um, verse 33 says, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's what it said, and that's why it was said about him, because of what he did. Now, I have an interesting comment from John MacArthur. He says, all the worshipers could fit into that one edifice because the number of Baal devotees had been reduced by the influence of Elijah and Elisha and by the neglect and discontinuance of Baal worship under Joram. Very interesting. So you see the pendulum going there, but uh, they're still there. There's priests there. There's worshipers there, but Elijah got rid of quite a few of them. And yet there still are a number there, and they are able to fit into, I believe it was a large Ephesus, edifice. Uh, verse 22. Verse 22, he's going to hand out religious garments. It says, he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the garments for them. Now this is interesting here because uh, these garments are selling this ruse. You know, it's like, hey, we're, this is a special, solemn occasion, and you need to have your religious garb on, the garb that is uh, dedicated to Baal. But there's another reason why he's having these on. He's going to be able to identify who are the Baal worshipers. If you're not wearing a robe, you're not a Baal worshiper, and they're not even going to get time to take off their robes to even play or pretend that they're not Baal worshipers. Well, then we have verse 23, when at this point, there is going to be this appeal. Now, if you're not a Baal worshiper, if you're a worshiper of Yahweh, then then you need to leave. 
So you remember that illustration I gave in the beginning? It's the same one, only opposite. And this is very interesting. Verse 23 says, Jehu went into the house of Baal, temple, with Jehonadab. You remember him from last time? Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of Yahweh, Lord in all capitals, Yahweh, but only the worshipers of Baal. Well, do you remember who Jehonadab was? Well, he was this... um, He was this worshiper of Yahweh who was a strict follower of the Mosaic law. So he had a lot of credibility. And you remember when he met up with Jehu, Jehu was on this mission of eradicating the house of Ahab, which Elisha had said. And of course, Jehonadab was going to be all for that. And Jehu asks him, is your heart with me? And he said, yes. And then he gave him a ride on his chariot. Well, here they're together, and now they're, they're following this plan to destroy Baal worshipers. Now, we don't know if Jehonadab was in agreement with the lie and the deception. We don't know any of that. None of that is said, but he is now with Jehu. And, and if they would have known anything about their own people, they would have known Jehonadab was a worshiper of Yahweh. They should have said, what's wrong with this picture? Well, when they removed the worshipers of Yahweh, or they asked for it, it doesn't say any when. We might assume that they did. I have have an idea that this was Jehonadab that might have said that to Jehu. Hey, let's just make sure there's no worshipers of Yahweh. Let's let them get out of here. But this kind of brings up the idea is that isn't that a little doubtful that there would be believers in Yahweh and yet they've come to this solemn day and festivities of the worship of Baal? Well, as, as, as doubtful as that is, um, it's very possible. Um, it's very possible because what Israel was guilty of was not just the worship of Baal. It was the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh, as if you could do both, provoking the anger of the Lord. It also may have been for perhaps some of those people a moment of decision. All right, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. How about you? So if, if you're a worshiper of Yahweh, you need to get out, take that silly robe off, and go now. Uh, perhaps they were vast. We don't, we don't really know. But isn't that interesting? Well, what's going to happen to everyone inside? Well, verse 24 tells us that. Verse 24 says, Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. This is Jehu. Now, Jehu had stationed for himself 80 men outside. And he said to them, the one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. So they had to kill every Baal worshiper and none were to escape and it would have been their own life. Kind of reminds you a little bit of the Roman guards. And if the Roman guard would have 
lost one of their prisoners, it would have cost them their life. Uh, Also, too, on the resurrection morning, when the body of Jesus Christ was not there because he was risen, they were in a lot of trouble to go back and explain what happened. And there is a sense in which it could have cost them their lives. Well, they ended up talking uh, to the Jews, and they came up with this conspiracy. The, The wonderfully strong argument of, well, his fishermen disciples did it. You know, you remember Peter with Peter's aim trying to kill the servant, and he swipes off his ear. He missed the servant. By the way, the servant didn't even have a sword. You know, at least Peter could have went after a Roman soldier with a sword. Well, here we have these men, and they're told, this is your life. You cannot let any of these worshipers of Baal live. And, and again, that is understandable. That's, that is within the perimeters of divine will, divine approval. That's what happened with Elijah. Um, these people were not going to repent. They're going to die someday somehow. And it's the Lord going to use the hand of either a nation or a king like Jehiel. And he does. Now, when we look at this verse in the beginning, it says they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And this becomes a little technical. Did Jehu actually sacrifice to Baal? Now, if he did, even though it's a ruse, it's not a good thing. I mean, it, it, just, it just wouldn't be something that you would compromise. So, did he? And, and you have various positions on, on this. Um, one is uncertain. Well, that's, that's probably the best position to take if you don't know. It says, whether Jehu himself offered the heathen sacrifice or merely saw to its offering by the designated priest is uncertain. And it is uncertain because it's not said, except it will say that he gave a burnt offering. Another one is doubtful. And this is a good argument. It's doubtful that he did. It's, he might have pulled back. It says, presumably, Jehu did not personally participate in the sacrifices and burnt offerings of the priests of Baal. To have done so would have undermined his attempts to win the support of the faithful in Israel. That, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they wouldn't have liked that at all. That wouldn't have went well. So, but then I had another commentary that said, oh, yeah. I mean, just look at his behavior. It's very understandable that he would do such a thing and it wouldn't give him a problem. Well, the perimeter is secured. The 80 men are stationed outside to assure that none escape the sword. And this is under the penalty of death. What happens? Well, let's look at verse 25. And, listen, and watch this first phrase. Then it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering. Some people read this and say, you see, he did. He did. He offered the burnt offering, although it is possible that someone might have done it for him. He was the king, and he could do whatever he wanted. Well, at that, this might have been like a predetermined signal, because at that, Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, go in, kill them, let none come out. 
So it was kind of probably something that was already talked about. As soon as I do the burnt offering, then I'm going to call you and you're going to come in and that's when you're going to begin. Because at that point, they're saying, hey, he really is going to be a worshiper of Baal. He had them convinced in his deception. And it says, and they killed them with the edge of the sword. And the guard and the royal officers threw them out, threw the bodies out, threw the dead bodies out. And then they went into the inner room of the house of Baal. Isn't that interesting? Just like the temple, the tabernacle that um, God had Israel build, the one that Solomon built in Solomon's temple, there was an inner room and then an, an inner inner room, the Holy of Holies. Well, we might presume that this is where their sacrifices were done as well. But anyway, they moved into the inner room. And so they did slaughter everyone. None none of them escaped. What did they do when they were inside this inner room? Verse 26, they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. Now, what are the sacred pillars? pillars. Well, we believe that these are idols, and we believe that these are idols distinct from Baal, because, give away the whole plan, look at verse 27, and they also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal, and we'll stop there. Don't read, please, do not read any further. That is a, I see people looking down, please do not read. Um, so the, these inner pillars, if they're not of Baal, and you get the idea that the sacred pillar of Baal is the big one. It's why they're all there. Um, what are these other ones? And of course, the pillars aren't holding up the building because the building would have collapsed. The pillars are sacrifices of, uh, to, to the idols. It's idols that they make sacrifices to. Well, if you remember when we read verse 33, of chapter 16 of 1 Kings, Ahab also made the Asherah. Probably these were uh, to God there, the Asherah. And they were made of wood because they burned them. If they were made of stone, they wouldn't have been able to burn them. So that's the first thing they did. And good for you, Jehu, you're doing it right. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to destroy the altars and the images. And any king who is, is worth his salt in the book of Kings, this is what he does. Well, Jehu is worth his salt, but the salt may have lost its saltiness. Anyway, we'll get to that. 27, they also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal. So at this point, not using the word burning, but using the word broke down, it's very possible that it was made of stone. Now, I have a picture of, I have a picture here of a stone, some sort of a pillar to Baal. This is a picture of Baal. This isn't the one that was there. And and to be honest with you, I really don't know how big it is. But this was a relief, a chisel in a stone to Baal. And they had these all over the place. Everybody probably had little Baal knickknacks in their house. You know, if, um, you know, maybe they're, they pray to Baal that they wouldn't get sick. Maybe they pray to Baal that their their fields uh, come to full harvest. They pray for 
protection. Well, here we have Baal, and of course, as you, you see, um, he, he's holding various things that represents him as the god of uh, storms and lightning, the god of uh, bringing about agriculture uh, and all those things. Basically, he was whatever you needed. That's what they thought. And so that pillar, that sacred pillar was broken down and destroyed, and then they also broke down the house of Baal. Well, what did they do with it? And in a deep sense of irony, it says, and they made it a latrine to this day. And so that indeed was the ultimate humiliation of Baal. And that, that wouldn't have been something that God was upset at. God wanted Baal worship to cease and Baal worship to stop. And by the way, uh, verse 27 and 28 is going to say something remarkable. So after they did this and they made it a latrine to this day, verse 28 says, Thus Jehu, Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Wow. So what Elijah started and Elisha threw his hat in the ring for, Jehu brought about to the demise of Baal worship. And by the way, that's as far as I'm going to say. I don't want any cats out of the bag here. Okay. All right. So thus he eradicated Baal out of Israel. And this is tremendous. He did some tremendous things for the Lord. But you are not going to believe this next section. Beginning in verse 29, this is Jehu's approval and sin, or maybe I should have said Jehu's sin and approval. It says, however, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, now you know who he was. He was the first king of the northern kingdom, and he instituted the golden calf worship and led Israel into idolatry. And then it got, thanks to Ahab and Jezebel, it got immersed in Baal worship. Well, that's done. But it says, however, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these... Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. And you're scratching your head saying, what in the world's going on? Well, now you're starting to figure out, yeah, Jehu did it. But it wasn't necessarily for the Lord. He had the Lord's approval to go kill everybody, not innocent people. He had the Lord's approval to kill all these prophets of Baal. But it wasn't out of total, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Now, that's the sin. And, of course, there will be repercussions for that. We'll pick that up in just a moment. But look at verse 30. Verse 30 is the approval. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall, shall sit on the throne of Israel. Well, first of all, he had completed what God wanted him to do. He did more and got in trouble, 
and then departed from the Lord. But it's as if the Lord is a just judge. But not if he is. He's a just judge. So he will say what was right, but he will also say what is wrong. And that's, that's a good indication, and that really is how we ought to be as Christians. We ought, you know, if it's right, if it's worthy of praise, if it's biblical, we ought to say so. But if it's not, then we should not say so. We should not be in agreement with it. Also, too, we've been seeing the sons of Ahab get it. We've been seeing Jeroboam's offspring get it, Baasha's offspring get it. They're not going to sit on the throne. But apparently Jehu did enough to at least have his sons sit on the throne for four generations. Now, that's no guarantee that they're going to be good. But this is what we see. Verse 31, we're going to add a little bit more about the sin of Jehu. And it, and it is sad. Now, let me just say here before we look more at this is that it, it does start to make sense why he had no problem lying before. It doesn't make it doesn't it doesn't um, confuse us that he did more than he did and killed innocent people because his heart really wasn't wholehearted for the Lord. And that's what it's going to say. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. That's the problem. If you want to say, well, what did he do? I mean, what is it that he did? And let's, let's talk about those things and let's try to correct those things. That's not the correction. That's the difference between biblical counseling and secular counseling. Secular counseling deals with the outward things. Biblical counseling deals with the heart. That was the problem. I don't mean to be simplistic, but if you want to talk about what the Bible says in the majority of cases, if not all of the cases, all problems are settled by a person's relationship with the Lord and moving on. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be great. But it means, that how, you know, it means that you're going to be able to keep going forward because of your relationship with the Lord. And, of course, for, for couples getting married and they come for premarital counseling, that's exactly what I key in on. You know, there's going to be a lot of things going on, but the, the number one key in marriage, whether you're about to get married or whether you are married, is your relationship with the Lord. It is important for your spouse's relationship, but that's not dependent. Your, your, your relationship is not dependent. So what do you say if you have one spouse working and walking with the Lord and the other one is not? Well, there's never a guarantee that both spouses are going to walk with the Lord. There's no guarantee. We have... We have uh, uh, truth and promises in the Bible that, you know, if we walk with the Lord, those around us in our household will also walk with the Lord. But we just know from experience that's not always the case. But the answer always is a person's relationship with the Lord. Work on that. There's a verse in the Bible that says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And as sad as it is, sometimes the enemy is the spouse. Or at least they're perceived as that. Or that's the problem. 
It's, it's a problem that enough that people will come for counseling, biblical counseling. And you're thinking of that. You're thinking, are your ways pleasing to the Lord? Don't worry about what your spouse is doing or saying right now. Worry about whether your heart is pleasing to the Lord. And many times when we look at it from that point of view, we realize, no, not everything is pleasing to the Lord. Well, let me work on that. When a man's ways please the Lord, he, the Lord, makes his enemies to be at peace with him. And by the way, that's also the principle of humility, is it not? If I, you know, confess my sin to the Lord, if I apologize to my spouse, that's the way back, the humility. And it's very hard for people, uh, for Christians, to not forgive someone who comes in a sincere humility to ask for forgiveness. Now, if you come nonchalantly say, well, you know, what I did the other day, you know, you didn't like, and... You know, I think you're just being, uh, you know, you're just being overboard and oversensitive. But, hey, I'm sorry. You know, if you come like that, that's not going to work. You truly have to come with humility. Say, I realize that what I did uh, hurt you, and I was wrong. Would you forgive me? All right, there we go. But we have here now this idea now of Jehu, whose heart was not right. And we could see why we have these extenuating circumstances and sin. It's because his heart was not right. In fact, we very well could have asked the authors to put in here what they often put in, and he did not walk and follow the way of David. Now, David sinned, but David's heart was a man after God's own heart, and he did repent when he sinned, and he is the standard, and and that's the difference. David did wholeheartedly seek the Lord. Well, as we have seen here, not only is it not wholeheartedly, but is Jehu going to get away with everything, even though he eradicated Baal worship, but not other kinds of forms of worship, like the golden calves? Well, we see consequences, but it's consequences by way of military, meaning that the enemy is going to come and attack Israel, and because the hand of the Lord is not with them, because he's not wholly following the Lord, they're going to not only lose the battle, but they're going to lose territory. They're going to lose territory. By the way, here's a picture of the golden calf. I don't know if it's the golden calf. I know it's not. But anyway, that's what a golden calf looks like, as if you couldn't already think about that in your imagination, because it's a calf that is golden. That's not the problem. The problem is is that it became an object of worship and one that they had in their history that caused not only sin but also repercussions. Well, we're going to talk about the territory that is lost while Jehu, the commander of the army before, is leading Israel as its king. Look at verse 32 and please note, In those days, the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel. And Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. So it's not that Hazael was so great. It's that the hand of the Lord was not for Jehu because Jehu was not for the Lord. And this was spoken of in Deuteronomy 28. If you follow me, this this will be guarded. If you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. We see that according to the Mosaic law. 
And we see that even in other kings, that God said this to other kings that this would happen. And, he, and we see kings that were protected, like Solomon, and there was peace. But there are other kings that aren't protected. And so, terrible. We're not just talking about land and real estate. Oh, well, you know, we didn't really like that piece of real estate anyway. This was the promised land. This was the land that God gave to Israel specifically. It's the, it's the chosen tundra. I mean, they're still fighting about it today. Well, and by the way, that's, that's why archaeology and antiquity is so important to the Jewish people because they can go back farther and farther and farther and show, hey, we were here. This is ours. Well, how much gets cut off? Well, look at verse 33. It says, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, even Gilead, and Bashan. So I have a map that I want to look at here. We'll look at this in just a moment. But do you remember something? Do you remember when Haziel was talking to Elisha? And Elisha was prophesying to him, telling him that he was going to be king. And then Elisha began to weep. Do you remember that? And Haziel says, why are you weeping? And in 2 Kings chapter 8, this is how Elisha responded. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And then he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and their little ones you will dash in pieces and their women with child you will rip up. And Elisha weeps at the reign of Hazael and primarily against Jehu, whom you would have never thought would have lost these battles. But because the Lord was disciplining him, he was. One writes, the Lord punished Jehu by giving Israel's land east of the Jordan River to Syria. This lost region was the homeland of the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh. So, so we have a little map here, emphasis on little, but I'll go ahead and blow it up. But anyway, at least this part, look at the shadow. That's the part that they lost. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. So if we get a little closer and look at that. So east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. This is what they lost under Jehu. Now, that's partly what Jordan is today. I have a map of what Jordan is today. So all that which is in yellow or orange, um, to the east of Jordan, the Jordan on the left, that's the boundary. That is Jordan today. So uh, we, we see that this is kind of the result of what has happened in the book of 2 Kings. Well, we come to verse 34, because this is the end of Jehu. And we pretty much have, have him figured out now, don't we? He did some things right, but his heart was not right. It did not follow the Lord. 
And it says, verse 34, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of, chron of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now again, when we started the book, we said that doesn't mean the book of Chronicles. It's, it's the, the, the kings of Israel and legal documents and records. And so that's where um, he was saying that this could be found. Verse 35, And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, became king in his place. Now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So it was a substantial reign. And he did some wonderful things, but it wasn't all wonderful. And um, Israel ended up losing some of its territory. Well, I want to, for our observations and applications, um, by the way, oh, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, good. Um, for observations and applications, I, I want to talk about, first of all, this idea of deception and God and the Bible. Well, let's just make it clear, and I'm not going to be the guy to come out and say you can lie, steal, depending on the circumstances, because sometimes the end justifies the means. You can't do that with God. There's no gray area. So lying, stealing, deception is never right. In fact, the Bible calls it sin. When you go to the New Testament, if there's any doubt about what happens in the Old Testament. However, the problem is, is that there are instances in the Bible where lying or deception appears to go unchecked by the Lord. It appears to go unchecked by the Lord. And the Lord doesn't really say anything specifically about Jehu's lies in order to kill the prophets of Baal. But I'm still not in that corner yet to say it's okay. One of the interesting things is that sometimes if you watch a police show, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this happens in real life, sometimes police officers, when they're interrogating criminals, they will, by hook, by crook, try to get them to confess. Is that true? It, it, okay, it's legal. And, and I'm not here to bash policemen, um, especially just in case they're ever interrogating me. Um, but no, seriously, um, I, did, I did know an officer that said, I know officers that do that, and he said, I, I don't do that. Um, there, he did have another strategy which kind of talked about the sinfulness and sin nature of all men, and in that, we were, were depraved, and we all could do the worst of sins. But this is kind of the answer, and, and you may come away and say, well, you know, I think there's instances when it's, it's okay, you know? Um, you may look at these biblical situations and say the same thing. Well, I get it. I get it. But uh, where do you come down to? Well, you have to come down to Scripture and where Scripture says it's wrong. We don't know what could have happened had they not, li had they not lied. I mean, we, we could have imagined that God would have perfect, protected them. And we do see some of those situations in the Bible. But Jehu, he lied about not knowing who beheaded the sons of Ahab. And that really was silly. It wouldn't have mattered. Really wouldn't have mattered. He gave the order. He knew. And then the instances with this the Baal worshipers where he killed them and, and he, you know, lied to get to bring them in and to lure them in. Um, well, 
you know, what, what do we say about that line? Well, I don't know. I, I think God is sovereign enough that that doesn't have to happen. Now, maybe it happened and maybe it worked. And it doesn't seem as if that specific sin is mentioned in the Bible. But that's where we have. Or how about Rahab? Remember Rahab? Nowhere in Scripture is Rahab condemned for her lying. And we might even say, well, rightly so, because she saved the lives of the, the Jewish spies. But she did lie. When they came to her and said, hey, we heard that these two spies came to your house. What, what it said is, it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So it was a lie. I mean, you could still say it was a lie. What would have happened if she wouldn't have lied? Well, did God protect her during the battle when all the others were killed? Yes. Could not have God protected her there? Well, not only that, but we know that she, she was rewarded. She was rewarded for not giving up the spies anyway. And the Joshua's army spared her. And then she even makes it into the faith chapter in Hebrews. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. It doesn't say because she hid them and didn't tell them. It says she welcomed them in peace. So again, it's a conundrum. And then we even have David, the one that we're putting up to all of the kings that you have to have to do. Do you remember when David was up against the king of Achish and they had captured David and he was stuck? What did he do? The man who went out and killed Goliath and then went after the rest of the Philistines? He pretended he was mad. He pretended he was insane. It says in 1 Samuel 21, 13 through 15. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why did you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And so he was allowed to go and he escaped and his life was saved. Now, suppose you're in a military situation and all of these things happen and that's the way you figure is the only way to get out. You do it and you get out alive. I get it. And I'm not going to say a whole lot. But if you ask me as a Christian, as a pastor, what do I think about lying? I have to say lying is a sin, and so do you. So we come with one conclusion, and maybe you won't be satisfied with this, but it is true. This does not mean that the Lord condones deception. It doesn't mean that he condoned that. But it does mean that God's will is not thwarted by man's schemes, by man's lying, and by man's deception. And God brings about his will oftentimes through the sin of man. Not that he makes them sin, but who among men is not a sinner? And yet God still brings his will about all the time, even in the midst of sin. 
So this just shows the sovereignty of our God and even the holiness of our God. Remember Numbers that says, uh, man, God is not like man that he should lie. Yeah, this is man. This is us. God doesn't lie and, and lying is a sin. Well, that's my thoughts on that. The second one is, and I'm going to move quickly, is Jehu's consequences for idolatry. So we already know that. Um, consequences for not following the Lord, uh, being involved in the idolatry of the golden calves. We know that he lost, he lost a lot of territory, but something else happened. A disappointing consequence of Jehu or his idolatry was that he had to bow before Shalmaneser III. So he was in there and he was a power. And the problem with this is there's only one sketch, relief, sculpture of any king of Israel. And it happens to be of Jehu bowing before King Shalmaneser. And here it is. This was preserved. You know, you could think of all of the things that could go wrong. Well, here it is. That one bowing right there, and we'll zoom in on him. That is Jehu. And we have, we have names of kings in, that we find in archaeology. Even David's name was found written on something in archaeology that proves that David lived, and we all knew it, but the, the critics don't believe it. Well, here's Jehu bowing before a king. He is the king of Israel, whose God is the God of Israel, who can protect them from everything and anything. And here he is bowing before it. And it's, it's the only picture of an Is, Israelite king that has been found so far. But sadly, it's a picture of Jehu, the king of Israel, bowing down before a pagan god. So, has, has there been discipline upon Jehu? Yes. Now, this isn't in the scriptures, but it's there in antiquity. All right, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the lessons here. And Lord, maybe we can't figure out how it all works together and, and all of that, but we know this, that we serve a great and powerful and mighty God and that we don't have to help him out. We don't have to help you out, Lord, by lying or deceiving in anything. We can be bold and truthful. And so, Father, would you let us be a light like Daniel? Would you let us be a light by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. May we be willing to stand for you no matter what, even if it would cost us our life, or if you intervene like you did with Daniel in the lion's den. Father, thank you for these things and the history of Israel, and we can see examples that we ought to apply to our lives. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.